0: I'm Kay Firth-Butterfield at the World Economic Forum. And I'm Miriam Vogel with Equal AI. And this is In AI We Trust. Hello Kay, great to see you. And you Miriam, yes. What's been happening with Equal AI and your work this week? Oh, we have been having good fun with meetings across the federal executive
1: branches in the US and on the Hill and really trying to push out some of the work that we've been thinking about and working on for some time. This white paper we've been working on from our AI summit is near completion. And so I'm very excited to be sharing that as well as the work that we're trying to bring to the finish line on the review, the survey of laws that are impacted by AI that are currently on the book. So some exciting projects that we have underway, and what are you working on that we should know about?
0: Well, I think that that's really the survey of laws on the books. I think that's really important. I have been also thinking about AI and the law quite a a lot and talking to a lot of lawyers. As I travel around the UK, particularly at the moment, I'm off to Vienna tomorrow for a digital humanism summit, and then I'm spending three days with the French government before I see you next. And... A shortage of good butter for conversation
1: and thought. And yeah. you know it's, it's really important that you're doing this work across the globe. I know it must get exhausting, but we all need to be doing that because we cannot have AI obviously within borders in terms of our policy development. It's so important that each region is thinking about it and participating, but it's equally important that we have this thoughtful international dialogue, uh, because we know that that's how AI travels and works. So really look forward to hearing more about what you're hearing and seeing. And speaking of laws on the books, one of the seminal forces, as we have talked about often, is the EEOC, the U.S. Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. And I am so excited for us to talk today with the chair of the EEOC, Charlotte Burroughs, a former colleague of mine from the Department of Justice, who I've always admired. I love working with her. She is as inclusive and thoughtful in her work as she is in the policy that she works on fostering. And we've seen how much benefit we've all had from the EEOC's strong statement about AI and how their laws that they currently govern and have purview over in the civil rights space are applicable in the AI space. So really looking forward to this conversation and let's dive in. Today, we are so pleased to be joined by Charlotte Burroughs, Chair of the U.S. Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. She was initially nominated to serve as Commissioner in 2014 and was re-nominated in 2019. The U.S. Senate unanimously confirmed her to a second term ending in 2023. Prior to her appointment at the EEOC, Chair Burroughs served as Associate Deputy Attorney General at the U.S. Department of Justice, where I know from personal experience she served nobly and worked on a broad range of civil and criminal matters including employment litigation, voting rights, combating racial profiling, and implementing the Violence Against Women Act. Chair Burroughs previously served as General Counsel for Civil and Constitutional Rights to Senator Edward Kennedy on the Senate Judiciary Committee and later on the Senate Committee on Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions. She worked on a variety of important initiatives that we still benefit from today, including the Lilly Ledbetter Fair Pay Act of 2009, and the Americans with Disability Act Amendments of 2008. She's had numerous positions across the Department of Justice earlier in her career. Served as a judicial clerk at the U.S. Court of Appeals, as well as having served in legal private practice. Chair Bros, thank you so much for joining us
2: today. Thank you for having me. It's such a pleasure to see you and to to join this program. Well, thank you. Well, first of all, I would love for our listeners to hear a little bit about what in
1: the first place got you so interested in the civil rights space that has been obviously an important part of your entire career supporting laws that are so important to the enforcement of our basic constructs of justice and fairness. And particularly, when did AI intersect with that interest? And when
2: did you become interested in that confluence? Sure. Well, you know, it's interesting because I grew up in the South in a family that was really interested in education, but also in civil rights. And frankly, in a number of instances, those things sort of collided where there were things that as a kid sort of made you Kind of scratch your head i guess with respect to barriers put up with myself with folks in my family towards higher education and even before that just all the way around right through grade school and so it made me interested in just sort of the fairness who who got to decide what opportunities were available and that translated into an interest in civil rights but with respect to artificial intelligence i have always been interested in figuring out well what's next and I guess it's a sort of curiosity. So while it's, I think, critically important to anyone who's doing this work to be paying attention to what's happening with automated systems and employment and more broadly, artificial intelligence, it's also something that for me, I think, was really a particular interest just because of my curiosity about these things, and and particularly technological advances. So, I will say that we at the EEOC have been looking at this since 2016 in a more robust way. In the Obama years, when I first started at the Commission, held a hearing to look at what we were calling then big data and the uses of big data, and how that was beginning to shape employment. And really, since then, it has taken off, as as you know, Miriam, in so many ways, even in that short time.
0: You have just been talking about the fact that this is not a new subject for the EUC, but AI has been in the news even more in the last six months. And as you've alluded to, back in 2021, you launched the Artificial Intelligence and Algorithmic Fairness Initiative. Could you tell us a little bit about what led you to do that and what the initiative aims to accomplish? and it's been two years since the launch of the initiative. What progress have you seen on accomplishing the goals and what still needs to happen? Absolutely. We're looking at this as a new civil rights frontier
2: with respect to the proliferation and really rapid proliferation of AI and other automated systems in employment, We have to be nimble enough as an agency to keep up with those advances in technology if we're really going to protect civil rights. So the first reason was we recognized that we needed to both educate ourselves and the public about what the advances are and where this technology may be taking us. And the, the underlying reason is, as you I'm sure are aware, but I, I feel the need to say it, that AI and other automated systems really are, you know, and I'm not talking here yet about generative AI. It's not so much what we're seeing in workplaces, but we are seeing a broad use um, and an increasing use of artificial intelligence and automated systems in employment. So by some estimates, as many as 83% of all employers are using some form of automated systems in their hiring and with respect to the very largest companies, what's referred to as the Fortune 500, we're talking about 99% are using some form of automated tools as they screen or rank or select candidates for hire. And so employers are really making these crucial decisions about who to recruit assignments, promotions, and even terminations, at least in part, based on algorithmic tools. So that means that the real civil rights harms that we see in any other aspect can also come from these uses. That's not a hypothetical problem, unfortunately. We're seeing some of that already. There's a notorious example that I think maybe some of your listeners are aware of with respect to an AI hiring tool that rejected people who had things like women's colleges or women's sports on their resumes, right? Nothing to do with the job. But those resumes didn't look like the resumes that AI program or the automated system had been shown and taught were the resumes of people who had succeeded in the past. And so the other you know, thing that I think people are aware of that there have been instances where the program sort of preferred people over everything else if your name was Jared and if you played lacrosse in either college or high school right so clearly those things are not what we think that most jobs should be selecting based on but if we don't pay attention if we don't really pay attention as an agency, then those can end up shifting the way that you know hiring works, the way that all these employment opportunities work, that our civil rights laws were enacted to protect us from those kinds of harms, that those things will nonetheless happen. And one other thing I would say for us in terms of goals is going back to educating the public to the extent that these systems are working already most of the time employees have no idea or applicants have no idea that they're being screened out because of an algorithm but sometimes they may have hints and because we're an agency that typically works in response to investigations that come out of individualized complaints what we call charges of discrimination the more we educate the public about this the more we are likely to find harms but most importantly making sure that we focus ourselves, educate the employer and the vendor community about what's needed, and then make sure the public is aware of the potential effects on their employment rights.
1: You brought up such an interesting point, which is that you're focused these days on not just the charges and the enforcement, but the education, which seemed to be a real shift at a most important time when there are these new connections that people are not making. They don't know that these AI systems that are Promising to help them perhaps increase the diversity in their workplace could actually be doubling down on the discrimination and decreasing opportunities for more candidates to have an opportunity to enter or thrive in their workplace. And so it's really interesting the intentionality on the education piece, and something that I know Kay and I talk about a lot. We've seen it have tremendous impact throughout the greater public to understand that this is something that's in your purview and helping to make those connections. And so we're very grateful for that. We'd love to hear more about that and also understand how that plays in, I would imagine, to some other historic work that you've been doing, including the joint historic statement last April that we saw the EEOC in addition to in conjunction with the Federal Trade Commission, the Department of Justice, and the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. So this joint statement on enforcement efforts against discrimination and bias in automated systems is really unique. Can you please tell us, what led to that and what was the intended outcome of this
2: joint statement? Absolutely. Well, that's something that we thought was really important to do and to do together is to make this joint statement to make clear that even as we're thinking as a society and even internationally about where we want this technology to go, that we let people know already there are some guardrails in existing law and that there are agencies that can and do enforce them. Because the technology is so new, there had begun to be a bit of a sense that, oh, we're sort of in a Wild West territory where there's no guidelines, that it's all new, and therefore there are no legal parameters. And that absolutely is not the case. I recognize there may be additional parameters to come. Um, There's a lot of conversation on Capitol Hill about adding additional safeguards and requirements but right now in each of our lanes and i'll speak to the equal employment opportunity commission's civil rights statutes that deal with advancing equal opportunity in the workplace those same statutes that guide employment and make sure that employers have particular responsibilities with respect to hiring or any other employment decisions, they apply regardless of how you're doing your hiring. So there is no exemption from the civil rights laws for some new fancy way of doing your hiring or making other employment decisions. And ultimately, that's the message that each of us wanted to get out, that there's not an exemption to these existing statutes just because you're using AI or some other automated technology and in addition um what i think is so exciting about it is we are working together collaboratively so it wasn't just a statement but we each have you know teams that work on these issues working groups if you will that have been collaborating to the extent that that's necessary to really understand all of the issues and all the ways in which these new automated systems are affecting people in the workplace. Each of us have slightly different lanes, of course, but there's some overlap. And we wanted to make sure we understood that so that we could have the ability to be, you know, with respect to the public, sort of coherent as an administration, at least in, in these areas, and um, make it simpler to the extent that that's, um, maybe that's a little too ambitious for this area, but less complicated than it would otherwise be if we all were using generally the same kind of language and understanding each other's authority. So those were the reasons to let the American public know that while there are a lot of things that are new and uncharted territory, we nonetheless are going to absolutely enforce and educate in our respective areas, Mm -hmm. um, just as we would with any other, you know, set of facts. Um, Just because this one is new doesn't mean that we're going to ignore the guardrails that are already in existence.
0: And that's so important, And, and in fact, I've just been giving lectures to lawyers about how important it is to look at the existing law and not think that, well, we can avoid, as you say, exempt yourself from the existing law because this is something new and absent regulation, there are existing laws that we should be using. And so I wanted to ask you that in addition to the 2021 AI initiative and that joint statement in April, the EEOC has actually provided guidance to help the employers understand the risks posed by AI in the hiring space and what they can be held liable for. In fact, of May last year, 2022, the EEOC, along with the Department of Justice, issued historic guidelines on how AI can violate the Americans with Disabilities Act, also known as ADA. This is something we often highlight in our work. So perhaps you could tell our listeners about the guidance, what was its purpose and content, and what are the risks that AI poses in the disability space, and who could be held liable? Is it on the developer, the deployer, both?
2: Absolutely. So we were delighted to partner with the Department of Justice on these issues. And just for background purposes, in case not everyone uh, listening is aware of this, we share the Americans with Disabilities Act enforcement role with the Justice Department. So we investigate with respect to state, local, private employers, any of those, but with those employers that are state and local governments, we would then, if there were something developed into a lawsuit, we would hand that over to the Department of Justice. With respect to private employers, so all the big multinationals, we handle those ourselves. But we, you know, sort of look at the legal issues together. So there are actually two different documents. And our technical assistance, which I'm thrilled that you're asking about, is found on our website at eeoc.gov gov slash AI for anyone who wants to take a look at it in more detail. But the the reason we issued this document is that early on, a lot of the conversations that we were hearing with respect to AI and possible discrimination in employment really focused on a lot of other conversations, other bases rather, you know, race, national origin, gender, all of which are important, but there was almost no discussion of disability. And what we were realizing is that because disability works very differently as a legal matter, we thought it was important. So let me tell you really briefly what it does, and you asked me who it applies to. So with respect to employers, really any of those, pretty much every employer, if you have 15 or more employees, should be looking at this. You know, And it doesn't bind the federal government in the same way, but obviously we will be looking at it too in our own work and it serves as um, a guide for employers software developers employees vendors who want to understand this so the big thing that the document does is to walk through what the legal requirements are and to give some very practical examples of what the problems could be so the first one is really and it's a big one but it's not that hard if you stop and think about it is that there has to be the ability for someone who's say taking an assessment that's an automated assessment to get an accommodation if they need it so imagine someone who's taking maybe a screening and it requires the use of your keyboard or a mouse right and if you have a a problem a dexterity problem that means you need more time or you can't Manipulated in the same way, even though you may be qualified, you need to be able to articulate that and ask for um, additional time or some sort of accommodation. What we have seen as a problem is that sometimes the employer will outsource the screening to a vendor that's not familiar with the ADA requirements. And the employer may be, but leaves it to someone else and the employee in that need fall through the cracks, or if something is so automated that there's no space to ask for it, that's when you come up with a particular challenge. But there are other kinds of challenges that may come up or even some of these personality tests that ask things like, do you wake up feeling sad or those kinds of things automatically, you know, may lead you to a place where you're inadvertently asking about whether someone has depression or some other, disability and so that is under the ada something that is prohibited it's a bright line you can't ask your applicants that they could volunteer it if they want accommodation so you know just to put this in context why we wanted you know i'll finish with this why this was so important to us is that persons with disabilities have a much higher rate of unemployment than everybody else you know runs about twice the average unemployment rate. So if you think about 2021, we were looking at 10.1% unemployment for persons with disabilities compared with 5.1 for those who don't have a disability. And I think that both of those rates have come down a bit, but again, we're talking about roughly double. So anything that makes it harder for this population to get employment, to have those equal opportunities for which they're qualified is a big deal to us. And, And those unemployment rates, those jobless rates, persons with disabilities are actually higher for those who are african-american or hispanic or even older americans compared to some others and so we really have to take that very seriously as we look at it happy to talk more about the things that we're seeing as potential issues there but that's really the the bread and butter if you will of the ta and we think it's a really great document we've gotten good feedback so really commend it to your listeners and obviously we're always interested to hear feedback too. So people can reach out and let us know um, what they think or if they think that there's more that we should be doing in this area, because we we recognize how important it is to educate as well as you know, be the enforcers, if you will.
1: Well, we really cannot commend you enough on all of these important initiatives we're talking about, but that one in particular um, was so important because it opened people's eyes to both a need, people who were being harmed without necessarily employers knowing it in their AI use. Obviously, a population, as you mentioned, that is more vulnerable, so that for whom we do need to be taking extra measures to make sure that we're not discriminating or harming or precluding ourselves, our places of employment from benefiting from these individuals who otherwise could be thriving. But it also was good to put employers on notice that while they were very familiar with certain types of laws to which they'd be held liable, I don't think enough of them were thinking about their AI use and ADA. And so I think it was an important public service and uh, really something that has had so much impact. So thank you for that would love to hear more about the types of use cases you're thinking about, because I do think there are so many employers out there who just don't realize that they could be discriminating in that way. But similarly, you have another initiative that was so important, recently issuing guidance on assessing AI impact in one of the preeminent employment discrimination laws, Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. So... Again, if you wouldn't mind sharing some examples of the type of use cases that you had in mind in issuing this guidance, how could someone be violating the ADA and Title VII with their use of AI and not even know it?
2: Thank you for that, because I think it's really important to get concrete. So let's stick with the ADA for just a minute, right? So there's a couple of ways that, and we talk about this in the guidance. So first, an employer, as I mentioned earlier, could fail to provide a reasonable accommodation. Um, we've talked about that already, and that's relatively straightforward, but it really is, you know, you have to think about it beforehand, not have it scrambling in the in the moment. What would you do? Often the best thing to do is to think are there some alternatives. That we could have that might um, assist somebody who, you know, obviously there's so many different kinds of disabilities that you can't anticipate everything, but having an accommodations process ready to go ahead of time. And having some way for someone to be able to avail themselves of that, that's simple, straightforward, and clearly communicated is critical. Um, The other thing that we find as a potential problem is that AI could exclude people based on an algorithmic assessment that unfairly sort of screens out individuals. Um, So it's unlawful to screen someone out if they're able to perform the essential functions of the job safely and competently. Even if it means doing so with a reasonable accommodation. And so that goes back to my example with, you know, hey, you might get screened out because you have depression. If that assessment that says, hey, if you wake up feeling sad, we're not going to take you as an employee or someone. This is one that affects persons with disabilities, but a whole host of others as well. If you have a gap in your resume right? Traditionally, that's been something that was done in the you know traditional hiring. And we've, we're seeing some of the algorithms just sort of say, hey, get longer than, say, six months when you're off. We're not going to do that. So think about women who may be caregivers or you know left to take care of a child. Often it hits women in that way, but it also can affect you if you've had an illness and a disability. And so that is a problem. And we've seen with some of these programs use sort of a analysis of speech patterns that can affect you based on national origin, or depending on if you have an accent, it could also affect you if you were someone who has a speech impediment, but could otherwise do the job. And so those are things that come up with respect to race, national origin, and gender It's under Title VII. So the newer technical assistance guidance that we put out, which deals with race, national origin, also religion is something that comes up, believe it or not, Uh, color and sex, which includes sexual orientation, gender identity and pregnancy for us as we interpret it. That often the issue is that there has been biased training data that is used to develop. Um, And by bias, I don't mean intentionally biased, but just for instance, to go back to the example of resumes used to train a screening device that were mostly from men that did not include any reference to women's colleges or women's sports, right? So when you had that training data, what happened is when someone applied who had a women's college or women's sports team on their resume, it in the pattern matching that was going on essentially with the automated training data that had been used, they simply got kicked out because they looked different from what the algorithm had been trained to think was the ideal candidate so that's one way that we see that on a host of issues there are also things are considered meaningful more generally Um, algorithms can be programmed in such a way that the biases and assumptions and preconceptions of the people who design them will vary and inadvertently bake into that algorithm um, discrimination and there are also some that uh frankly this is rarer but we have seen some which intentionally target you know candidates based on a protected category the one that comes to mind immediately because it's a case that we have from litigation is that there was a programming of you know birth dates so birth dates past a certain year if you were older than a particular age would not advance they were not even considered in the application process um so again that intentional use to amplify uh, something is is much less common but it does in fact uh, exist and i think the the other kind of thing that we see sometimes is that a targeting of job openings based on data that is either provided by users or inferred from their online activity or both is sometimes used and i think this is not so common but in recruitment So those are some of the things that we're seeing. Um, This is in a rapidly developing area, frankly. And so you ask me six months or a year from now and I'll have some different (laughs) examples maybe. But those are the kinds of things that we're focused on. I think the last thing I'll add though, and this is a different, this doesn't go so much for screening and evaluation, but more sort of just the daily monitoring of employees. There are some industries that have started to use, where some employers have started to use an algorithm to figure out how long certain tasks should take. So imagine someone on an assembly line, uh, or packing a box, or delivering a package. Those things that are discrete tasks are set to a time that's been determined by, I suppose, I'm not sure how they're all working, but how long it's expected that a regular employee should be able to f- finish that task. And sometimes that doesn't provide for things like if you have a disability, you might need to take a break or you might work differently. If you are pregnant, maybe you need to take a break or more bathroom breaks or sit down and rest. Um, and then there's some employees that need a prayer break for religious reasons. And those things may not map perfectly into the way the algorithm is expecting uh, employees to work. So those are also things that we have flagged and are raising for folks. Um, as well as, uh, and this is the last thing I'll say, is a little bit technical, but it's super important on this, is that some of the vendors as they develop these and the employers as they're looking at whether or not there may be some sort of negative impact on a particular group, say based on race or gender, is that they've misunderstood how the EEOC's uniform guidelines on employee selection procedures work which have been around sort of guiding selection in this area and a host of areas rather for employment for a very long time, that um, they've misapplied them a bit in this context. And what I mean by that is that under the guidelines, there's a rule of thumb, if you will, that says that if the selection rate for a particular group, let's say it's women, should not be less than 80% of the rate for any other group. So if you find that 100% 100% of men are, are you know sort of being selected, and only 50% of women, or less than 80% of women, then you should be looking at that to see why, and that's a sign that there may be bias. But it's really just a rule of thumb, and that I think has gotten lost in the translation, and that some uh, vendors are really looking at it as a, a hard line, and if you you know can get past the 80% rule, then game over. And the um, reality is it requires a lot more sophisticated analysis and looking sort of through um, all the facts to really know for sure in this context, Um, in others as well, but in this context particularly.
0: Thank you. Thank you for those concrete examples. As you say, it's really important to have those so that we can anchor the the broader thinking in, in the in what businesses really need to get their heads around. And as you said, we are seeing so many changes so quickly. And if we invite you back in six months time, things will be different, but you have to produce um, strategic documents at the EOC. And so back in January, you published your draft strategic enforcement plan for 2023 to 2027. So although it's only in draft, it included several references to AI as part of the EOC's goals for the next four years. Can you tell us about how AI fits into the strategy and what you hope to accomplish with regard to AI over those next four years?
2: Absolutely. So that strategic enforcement plan really sets forth our substantive priorities for enforcement across the board. And the reason why you see AI pop up is because we are realizing that this issue kind of runs through all of the other kinds of employment decisions now and that is only expected to increase uh in the future so what we are doing is making it really important uh making really clear rather that we know it's important that we are planning to make sure that we build out internally our own expertise that'll mean some hiring etc but also to signal um, and that signals not just externally but also throughout the agency that we are going to be focusing on the issues there so we've put a tremendous amount of work into making sure that it's specific enough to guide our work um, and also inform the public, but also there's enough flexibility to adapt as we look down the road and maybe things change. That initial draft, by the way, was developed by an internal working group that included members throughout the EEOC program offices, our union, each one of our commissioners offices, and we hosted three commission meetings to get input as from the public, focusing on racial and economic justice, vulnerable workers, and a host of other issues. and. AI really kind of kept coming up in those discussions. And so we put that together. It was a signal that, yes, you're right, um, we need to stay uh, after this. And we put that draft plan in the Federal Register earlier this year. We got a lot of comments, and we're in the process of um, taking those into account and revising. So we are anticipating putting that out later on this year. It will require a formal vote of the full commission to take effect. And I don't wanna get ahead of that, Um, but as you note, we did include AI in the draft and we've heard a lot, not just in the listening sessions, but also in our comments about the importance of that, um, including during a hearing we had earlier this year. So stay tuned, but I do anticipate that uh, it may still be in the final. So we'll see, again, no predictions ahead of the commission vote, but I, at least speaking for myself, think it's, it's an important area.
1: Well, we will certainly be on the lookout for that Terbrose, you've given us so much to talk about here in terms of all the different initiatives you have underway, all the different ways that you're making sure the public is aware and safeguarded with AI use, uh, let alone all the other things you're doing. But, you know, if we were to talk to employers specifically, and you know, there's so much need urgency right now to be adopting AI, whether it's because you wanna make sure that you seem current and you don't want to appear to be a dinosaur that's not using the newest, coolest, Technology and to be sure, you know we talk all the time about the many ways that AI does make life better. I mean, there are so many important uses and efficiencies. Uh, So, if you are the average employer out there who's not trained in AI, it's not something you ever expected to need to become an expert in, and you're you know, talking to all these vendors who are telling you about the ways that it'll increase efficiency and make your HR systems better. Most companies are probably not building them internally. As you know, as we know, most companies are looking to third-party vendors in order to acquire these technologies. So how would you advise them to be thinking about employment laws when they're asking questions, when they're preparing their procurement process or having these conversations with third parties who are potentially selling them these AI systems, some of which may be discriminatory.
2: Absolutely, that's so important. So just to be clear, our technical assistance documents also try to identify some promising practices. So the two that I mentioned earlier, that would help an employer avoid discrimination and violating the laws that we enforce. So in the ADA context, um, we've included ways for employers to make their employment processes sort of less opaque and allow persons with disabilities the chance to compete fairly. So one of the things that we think is important is to make sure that there's that reasonable accommodation process if you're talking to a vendor to talk to them about you know what would happen if someone asked for accommodation at what point that can be fit into the process. You'll learn a lot not just by how they've done it but how thoughtful they are about that will tell you I think it is a good indicator, rather, about how much they've prioritized these issues. You know, informing all job applicants and employees who are being rated that reasonable accommodations are available. So, do they, if they're going to administer it, do they have a, a plan for communicating that? Do they describe in plain English and accessible formats the traits that the they're trying to assess with this program? Can they explain that? You don't have to be an expert in AI to ask that question and see if what they're saying the system does actually meets your needs. Obviously you will have thought about those needs exactly before you have that conversation. And I think it's really important for me to be clear, I very much sympathize with employers who have, particularly those who get just inundated with, some of them get millions of applications, right? So you do need in many instances an automated a way to deal with that that in the ada context we also uh, our document suggests as a promising practice that you train staff to recognize and process requests for a reasonable accommodation as quickly as possible if the vendor is doing that have they thought about that train staff to develop or obtain alternative means of rating job applicants and employees if somebody really can't take your assessment because of a disability And that'll decrease the likelihood of those things. I think also in the Title VII context, so with respect to race, national origin, religion, uh, gender, color, the types of questions an employer wants to ask could include things like, you know, whether or not they've looked into the disparate impact, have they examined that? And again, you don't have to be an expert to ask that, it's a yes or no, but in particular, um, and this is a bit more technical, but also are they just relying on the four-fifths rule? Or are they looking at something more s- sophisticated for statistical significance? You don't have to be able to yourself evaluate that, but just seeing if they're thoughtful and the, answering the questions I think could be helpful. It's important for employers to be sort of thinking through that in advance and really asking, what does this measure? What does it actually do? Are you actually getting a product that's valid You know, when you look into it? I think that will be really informative as well as third-party auditing issues, just asking them, have they thought about it? As we see some of the state and local governments sort of dipping a toe into um, some of those regulations, those are gonna be more and more frequently questions that they should be uh, prepared to answer given some of the, the things that the state and local governments are requiring. And, you know, stay tuned with respect to the federal uh, enforcement. I, You know, things are starting to move on Capitol Hill. So we'll see where that process goes as well.
0: Thank you so much. And thank you for all the work you and your staff are doing to ensure that, that people are protected in this very important area. You know, what could be more important in your life? Than, than having an opportunity to work and an opportunity to work in a, in a position that you can do as well. So sadly, we come to the close of our show, but we always ask our guests this one final question and everybody has trouble with it. And I must say, when Miriam interviewed me not so long ago, I had trouble with it as well. So we're excited to find out If you had a magic wand to achieve just one wish to help us achieve responsible AI, what would that be? Wow, I love the idea of having a magic wand. So
2: pulling back from the area of employment, obviously that's where we are laser focused, but what's really important to understand about this moment, I think is that this is a democratic conversation about what kind of society Uh, We should be or it should be a democratic conversation and one of the issues I will share really worries me about this area is that we have, on the one hand. You know these broad civil rights laws that were enacted with strong bipartisan majorities in both chambers of Congress and actually with respect to the laws that we at the EOC enforce it's right from the very inception since 1964 with the Civil Rights Act that actually created our agency. And if you look at those majorities, they're huge. Now there was a filibuster that was quite long, it's quite famous. There was a lot of back and forth, but at the end of the day, that statute and others since it, the ADA Amendments Act, as well as the ADA itself, brought bipartisan majorities through pretty much every one of the statutes we enforce. Right up to the Pregnant Workers Fairness Act, which was enacted in December 2022. So what I would hope is that the need for a democratic conversation about how we protect those laws in the face of these rapidly changing technologies would actually involve everyone. I think if we do that, and if people really understand what's at stake and how it affects them, then we'll get it right. Right? And so the technology should not drive us. We should determine how we want as a society to use it. And I think that right now we have these broad, popular, you know, strong protections for civil rights of necessity and a very narrow few people who know exactly how this technology works. And so it's, you know, it, I'm not criticizing it, but it's the opposite of a broad, democratic process, and yet it has the potential to affect everything that we care about and that we've been doing as a society. And so to bring what has been really an expert's conversation into a broader conversation so that everyone has an ability to understand how this technology will affect us and has a say in it, I think that would be what I'd want with my magic wand, that as we use this technology, we do it in the Broad public interest with broad public input. And so, you know, that's a tough hurdle, which is why I'm so thrilled to be talking to you all today and why I think it's so important that we be talking broadly as a society about this new civil rights frontier because it really does matter. And I think right now, as this technology is taking off, is the time to do it. I think later will be too late. Thank you so much. We have been so
1: grateful to keep track of the important work you're doing. even for today, spending the time to talk with us about the important work you're doing, how it affects people, how we'd like it to affect people and putting it in the context. I mean, the the workspace is where we all spend so much of our time. It's where we get our energy or lose it. It's where we have the opportunity to thrive, make the connections like fortunately I did with you back at Department of Justice and create a community like we had there if it's done right. So thank you for all the work that you're doing to ensure that That others benefit from a just and fair workplace and opportunities to enter that. Thank you so much for taking the time with us today to explain to us a little bit about what you're focused on and why we've benefited so much from hearing from you and from all the work that you're doing.
2: Thank you. It's a pleasure to see you again, Miriam, and to meet you, Kay. Really appreciate your interest in the commission's work.
1: Thank you. Well, Kay, that was a lot. That was so much helpful information about Chair Burroughs herself and about the really important laws that are under their purview that are applicable to AI today. So a really important heads up for anyone developing, deploying, licensing AI that the EEOC may be looking at the work that they're doing and they need to be mindful of U.S. civil rights laws on the books that may be implicated by the work that they're doing today. Another really thoughtful, interesting discussion. Thank you so much, Kay, for doing this and being on this journey
0: with me. Oh, it's a pleasure always. Thank you. Subscribe to or download our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. We always welcome your feedback. And if you like the podcast, please rate us or give us a review. To learn more or get involved, visit us at www.equalai.org and www.weforum.org.
1: If you've enjoyed this podcast and want more unique content, please head over to Radio Davos from the World Economic Forum. And a special thanks to NP Agency, without whom this podcast would not be possible.